Hello, welcome to Sitcom Geeks. I'm Dave Cohen. And I'm James Carey. And uh, today we uh, are delighted to have a very special guest who has, uh, for four, nearly getting on for four decades, I would say, has been at the, the sort of pinnacle of uh, comedy as a writer and performer. Um, she's, um, she was in 1995, I think, was the first uh, woman to win the uh, Perrier uh, Award, and since then has, has worked uh, continuously, successfully, writing, performing, and has got, gone into all sorts of areas, writing books, uh, monologues. And uh, I'm currently reading your latest book, Inheritance, and so please, everybody, uh, welcome Jenny Eclair. Well, I'm blessed to be here, Dave. And I have to correct you, though, unfortunately, Inheritance isn't my latest book. Inheritance ah. is my latest novel. I've just ah. bought out um, Older and Wider, which is a survivor's guide <laughs> to the menopause, which right. uh, is an addition to my non-fiction canon. But I'm, yeah. I'm not fast. Yeah. OK, well, you mentioned it. That's good. No, we yeah, I've got my plug day. in. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And Dave's done a very good. Dave did a good big up there. I hope. I hope your agent was getting all that. You know. <laughs> yeah. um, and how are you getting on with inheritance, Dave? Uh, very well, thank you. It reminds me very much of uh, in, in the style of uh, Rebecca. Uh, the, the, the Daphne. Well, DeMorian. I'll take that. The Daphne oh. <laughs> yeah. I'll have that one. That'll, that'll a... do me. It's, amazing. it's a well, bit like a room. Well, it isn't, it isn't. I mean, um, it's set in Cornwall, which is, uh, you know, it does share that Rebecca mm. background. Um, I don't think it's got that much else in common, really, but I do love, I, I will take any similarities between me and Daphne du Maurier. <laughs> I should but think I'll so. I, I'll, I'll stick with this because what, what, one of the ways, uh, what, what, what I uh, like about it is the, um, the way that the house, um, Kitty Wake in Cornwall, yeah. is, uh, it's sort of like a character. It is a character, yeah, very much so. It takes up as much space as, as any of the lead yeah. characters. But that's how I always approach uh, writing novels. It always starts with the house. Um, I, I know we're veering away from sitcom already. Well, <laughs> but, no, actually, we're not because go, go on. It is and then the we'll situation. It. Yeah, it is the situation, and that's mm. why it is vital for me to know uh, my house very, very well indeed. And I've written five novels now, and they all they all feature a house. And then it's a bit like I always blame my mother for this because she didn't let me have a doll's house. She always said to me, "You can make your own. Here's a shoebox. <laughs> make your own." Uh, you know, typical Northern Army wife and uh, a mother and so um you know i've always had this fascination with the insides of people's houses and how people move around in their, their houses and who might be inside them and i think that also stems from living in army barracks as a child and everybody's houses uh, there's a, one time in my life when i was about six or seven you know where you start going around to other people's houses for tea their own houses were the same because they're all army. They're all army barrack houses. That's all those so you know where the toilet is. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes they're the other way around. They were like a mirror oh. image, which is <laughs> completely fucked me over. But and they uh, and a lot of them had the same regulation furniture as well. And you weren't allowed to leave any marks or anything, so people didn't really have that much stuff. So when my dad came out of the army, and I started going into the houses of, of people who you know, weren't from a military background, it blew my mind completely. It really did. And ever since then, I've had this slight obsession over interiors and, and how people live. And I'm much better at, desc at describing a sofa than I am a tree. 
Yeah. Well, I, I think I think the sense of place is, is really overlooked, especially within situation comedy. And I think although, you know, you, you almost want the situation to have a life of its own. I'm just thinking of shows where the sense of place is really strong. I know it's a bit of a probably a bad place to start. Open all hours, of course, has that corner shop that's incredibly evocative. And of course, you've got the till that's a character, you know, who is the centre, it's the heart. Well, yeah, and Arkwright sort of like, you know, David Jason and that till. You know, I've never watched it's... a single episode of it, but I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, and the tin always falls off the top when it, it shuts back in. and But just that sense of place, do you, do you really think about that sense of place before you start writing anything, even the characters? Um, I think that it's very important for me to be able to visualise, even with quite small things, with quite short things, like the monologues I write for Radio 4, I do instantly get pictures of where they live and how they live and, and what sort of colours they might live with. Yes, it's all quite visual for me. Right. That's uh, because, and um, there are plenty of uh, alt sitcoms where you, you talk there about being able to describe a, a sofa better than a tree. And I know a lot of people uh, are against the idea of sofas in sitcoms, but, uh, you know, friend, Friends is a, is a sofa, begins and ends with a sofa. Well, um, once upon a time, I mean, any sitcom was basically, you know, a sofa and a living room. And I mean, I don't think you can take the sofa out of the sitcom because uh, the royal family. Uh, was is another fine example. I mean, I'm not. Listen, I'm gonna I'm gonna come clean here, guys. I'm not a sitcom geek. I don't really watch sitcoms, but I do know I do know. Thanks very much. I know Goodbye, few. Jenny. Great. Well, Jenny's latest <laughs> book is available. It's called Inheritance. Uh, the short. Uh, Thank you. No, no, no. I'm learning and I'm listening and I'm really yeah. interested because actually yeah. I probably know more about sitcoms than I give myself credit for. But as I say, the royal family, that was yeah. a, a fantastic example of uh, the sofa containing a family and, and that, that being the base of, of where it came from. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you, you've spent uh, a lot of your uh, life performing in front of audiences and making them laugh, which is, uh, you know, kind of what audience sitcoms have been doing for 50 or 60 years. So, um, yeah. I was that. in a sitcom as well. Sort yeah. of. I don't know whether it was, it could be described as a sitcom. It was a sort of semi, it was a hybrid. I don't know whether you remember it, Dave. Right, it was kind of... of three. <laughs> yes. I yeah. can not only oh. just remember it, Jenny, I can remember the theme tune. Oh, that's weird. Yeah. Well, how on earth did it go? Well, it just started going, packet of three. Dun, 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 dun. And then there were these puppets. Dun, 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 they made puppets dun, 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 of me, dun, dun. Frank and Henry Normal. Yeah. They were like Thunderbird puppets. It was sort and of sort front of stage, backstage, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah, it was, it, was, it was nearly successful, but it kind of misfired horribly. Um, and the premise, again, you know, the situation was uh, the Crumpsall Palladium which uh, was uh, Henry Normal came up with. Henry, of course, was he was miserably fired from it after the first series, and it was all his idea. I mean, it really was disgraceful how people behaved. And, of course, he just fucked up and founded Baby Cow and made an absolute fortune and made brilliant, brilliant things and actually showed everybody at Channel 4 that they'd made a bit of a mistake, but there we go. Um, so... Yeah, it was um, set in the Crumpsall Palladium and it was backstage and front stage, exactly as you just said. So you'd have real live guests and uh, they ranged from being sort of stand-ups 
to more special acts. I remember there was a motorbike act once. That was that was quite ridiculous because he actually rode his motorbike through the theatre on this really badly made sort of piece of track that some blokes had knocked up in the afternoon. He just thought, well, he could die. Um, and, uh, and yeah, it was, I remember the review, the first review I read of it in Time Out. Um, I was at a train station and literally the first episode had gone out and I picked up this copy of Time Out. And uh, I remember reeling back, reeling back from the review, there was a photograph of us. And the, the review started with the words that I've never forgotten. And they just said, may God forgive everyone. I'll start this again. Mm. May God forgive everyone involved in this Texas-sized turkey. <laughs> time out were renowned for just being mean because for, yeah. you know, for the and sake this of sense it. of shame that went through me and i remember closing the the copy of time out really quickly in case anybody sort of saw the review and recognized that i might be the girl in it because i was a girl then yeah. Uh, yeah. and yeah this absolute you know that thing where you just want to shed your own skin because you're far too embarrassed to be in it yeah absolutely yeah. I mean, it was it was it was quite dodgy, but I think it had elements of, of you know something that could have been quite special. I was thinking about that show because you know, obviously talking to you uh, today, but I was thinking about it, and 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 the the, the interesting thing that hadn't struck me at the time, um, but thinking now is that the three of you, um, you all began as uh, poets, uh, you and Frank and uh, Henry. Um, Henry uh, definitely. I don't remember Frank as a poet, but I mean, no, he, he was. He was. He, he was called. Um, I think he was called something like Chris Collins or something before. Yeah, he, he was definitely Chris Collins before when he was an alcoholic and all that. Yeah. <laughs> Not professionally. <laughs> it wasn't an act, you know. It wasn't. <laughs> no, hey, he did. Jolly Chris Co Collins. I'm the piss bloke <laughs> yeah. that does the funny jokes about being an alcoholic. It wasn't that. It was his real but, life. But dead. I remember doing a. Uh, couple of gigs with him when he was first starting out as Frank and and uh, he did uh, songs and and uh, poems and things and um, yeah. which I was kind of quite and, and, and you know they they were they went by the way pretty quickly um, and Henry's back doing poetry now Henry's uh, been doing so because he left Baby yeah, Cow yeah. Mm. and he's now sort of he's done a, a series of poems I think about his um, autistic son who's yeah. a teenager well, he made, yeah, made a fantastic radio show yeah. about it yeah yeah, yeah. No, it's uh, it's, it's 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 great. He obviously he, you know, he spent whatever seventeen years at um, Baby Cow, and you know, had a fantastic time there, and just thought, well, maybe I can go out and do some gigs again. And fantastic, really, really pleased to know that he's doing that. Um, yeah, so Jenny, not now because so, nobody's so, doing gigs now. Honestly, it's a fucker, isn't no, it? I tell you. No, anyway, no, go well, on. I'm listening. Well, I'm listening. I was, gonna, <laughs> I was just going to say. Um, so poetry, in some ways, is a way that some people get started because it gives them a form and a structure, and it's a bit like very much know, so. people, people doing. Songs it's like doing songs. It's like doing songs for people who can't sing or play guitar. Well, I'm utterly I mean, tone deaf. That's because not for if me I wasn't to say. tone deaf, I know I can I can demonstrate for you. Okay. Um, but uh, if I wasn't tone deaf, I'd have been Debbie Harry. I mean, you know, it, okay. it's a terrible, awful circumstance that has forced me down the stand-up route because. Um, I literally, I cannot sing and I cannot follow choreography. So okay. uh, my choice is narrow. And also I'm a rubbish actress. I mean, I went to drama school and I really did think that I was going to be an actress. And I think if I'd been born sort of 30, maybe even 50 years before, there'd have been a little sort of 
there are some jobs, when I watch old films, old black and white films, I always think, oh, that's my job, my role, because there's always some sort of vaguely funny young girl carrying a tea tray um, yeah. who doesn't say much, but she tries to make the most of it. And that was kind of, <laughs> kind of going to be my destiny if I'd stuck to acting. But because of, um, you know, how, the way comedy evolves and history sort of coincides with these cultural shifts, I went to drama school in 1978 to 81. And this coincided, of course, with the, the birth, really, of alternative cap, uh, comedy. Yeah. You were there. Uh, uh, you, you weren't at, I know you were in Manchester, weren't you? You weren't there with Ben Elton or... Uh, I wasn't at the... No, I wasn't at the university. I was such... Honestly, I, had, I was such an inverted snob when I was a teenager. The idea of going to university absolutely horrified me. I thought it was just for, for straights and twats. And I really, really honestly, it's the kind of thing my oldest sister did. You know, she went off and did English at, uh, oh no, she didn't, she did law uh, at King's. And I just, you know, I wanted to leave school at 16 and I wanted to do this and I wanted to be that, do that. And um, my mum basically said, I wanted to go to drama school. My mum was very sensible and she said, you know, you won't get a grant unless you get A-levels. So I managed to scrape two A-levels. I really was, I was so idle. I didn't make any fucking effort whatsoever. I mean, I love art now. I paint more now than I did for my art A-level uh, in a week. <laughs> so, yeah. And I, I well, got education a education is wasted on the young. Yeah, I've got a D and an E, English and art. Those are the only ones I passed. And with those two A-levels, I managed to get a grant and go to uh, Manchester Polytechnic School of Theatre, which was in this old, um, it was in an old cinema in Didsbury in, um, in Manchester. Yeah. Right. Everyone so has got eating disorder. So was it, um, well, so I was going to say, getting into the stand-up then, it feels like there were things that felt like they weren't going to work out for you. But what is it about the stand-up form that you liked? Was it trying to make it work? Was it the persona? Was it the jokes? Was it the intoxication of audience laughter? You know, what what was it for you? It, it, was, a, you well, it, was, a, it was kind of an accident in some respects. I needed to get my equity card. And I was sleeping with this bloke who, um, he was a bit of a mover and shaker, really. He'd been at... He was in the third year when I was in the first year at drama school. And um, he was just kind of quite bossy and quite good at getting projects off the ground. And he formed oh. this funny little um, alternative cabaret band called Kathy LaCreme and the Rum Barbers. And Kathy was, you know, the one of the original punk poets. And uh, one of the girls at my drama school had gone out with John Cooper Clark. And I, as soon as I heard John Cooper Clark, I was completely convinced by it. I thought he was great. And um, so, you know, at first, the very first gig I did, I just I did a, a poem of Kathy's. I thought, I can't just copy her stuff. I've got to do, you know, one of these on my own. Because, you know, one thing I, I'm not is a cheat um, when it comes to performing and, you know, using other people's material, even then, felt very, very wrong. So I started writing my own stuff. And then, of course, the band... Uh, split up because everybody fell out with each other and you know uh everyone slept with the wrong person and stole each other's drugs and all the usual stuff and um i um i ended up honoring a gig by myself just no one else turned up you know that thing when you sort of go to a gig and you expect to see your bandmates there and they just weren't there and um so i just did some poems by myself and and then i thought well you know 
I'll take all the money for myself. Mm. My, you know, my first ever gig that I did in, uh, as a stand-up, um, you you were on the bill, actually. No. Yeah. Where? It was uh, the Earth Exchange Vegetarian Restaurant. Oh, uh, I love the Earth Highgate. Exchange. Run mm. by Kim. Wasn't it a bloke called yeah. Kim? Kim Wells, yeah. yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah, he was a nice bloke. Far too nice for us lot. Yeah. You know, he really I'm... believed in what he was doing. Mm. It's a t it was a tiny, tiny room, vegetarian yeah. restaurant, and most of the people there had gone to eat food, and they, even though yeah. they'd been going for years, he'd suddenly he'd sort of get up at eight thirty on the Monday evening and say, "Right, okay, we've got we're doing a, a comedy show now." And yeah, people, whether they liked it or not. <laughs> yeah, people sort of eating their tofu sandwiches, going, yeah. "What?" There's a lot of mung beans, a lot of yeah. bean sprouts, and all that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was really hot. Do you remember the other hot one as well? The one that was really hot. All these places, they were so tiny. And we basically spent 10 years performing in armpits. Um, <laughs> there was one called Bungees. Do you remember Bungee? Oh, yeah. Bungees very well, yeah. yeah. And that was on Tim Pan Alley, and it had mm. been a, a folk club, hadn't it? I think yeah. sort Bob, of, Bob Dylan had Bob played Dylan there. Had played Legend, there. Legendarily, like, it's said. Yeah. yeah, I'm actually reading um, David Mitchell's new book, um, Utopia Avenue. Right. And I think not, it met, not I think our it, David Mitchell for the sitcom geeks listeners, I think. No, yeah, not that one. Other, oh, it's a like peep show. Uh, you know, when you said, I said at the beginning I wasn't really a fan of, of sitcoms, mm. really liked peep show. I thought peep oh, show was right. brilliant. Um, yeah, no, and I think he might even mention Bungie's in Utopia Avenue. But it's, yeah, that was, oh, those are the days. Because, you know, we were so early on that. There was quite a, a mix at that time. It wasn't just straight stand-up, was it, no, in the no, early no. 80s? It was... Well, um, when did you come along? When did you jump on board? Well, this was early 1984, and uh, the right. bill in this tiny, tiny room was um, the Joan Collins Fan Club. Uh, ah, Julian Clary. With Julian Clary, with Fanny the Wonder Dog. Oh, um, yeah. John Hegley <laughs> and the Popticians, so that's Brilliant. John and his yeah. band. Yeah. And, and you... <laughs> And I was the I was the, the tryout spot, and ah. um, weirdly, I discovered years later, uh, Morris Gran, as in Marks and Gran, was in the audience. No, uh, and uh, I, met, I know. Yeah, I met him. Sort of got to know him about twenty years later, and he said, "Yeah, I remember. I saw you." And he he mentioned that bill, and I I obviously always remembered it because it was my first ever London gig. And he said, you know, and I got up and uh, and Julian Clary made an idiot of me, which, of course, Julian always yeah, yeah. basically used to do. Yeah, but with such grace. He used to do with such grace. Yeah. I, I, you know, and Julian is one of the most elegant performers, always was. I was sort of, you know, he did get people on stage and all that kind of thing. But I never felt... I never felt bad for them. I was thought, no, you're going to be all right. You're going to be... Julian's going to look after you, really. It's not going to be horrible. It's not going to be humiliating, yeah. But the reason, I mean, one of the reasons I, I mentioned this partly, uh, you know, not just for a little trip down memory lane, but I, yeah. I, although for the benefit of the fact, of the benefit yeah. of the listeners, a fact sheet and flow diagrams will be available <laughs> right. in the show we'll, notes. We'll actually do you, we'll do a test at the end. Yeah. We'll do a quiz. Mm. But, but, uh, but do you it, remember back then there was there were quite a lot of variety acts. Do you remember oh, it wasn't just stand up? 
Well, Jongleurs was was uh, the home of uh, you know all, you you got all sorts. I remember uh, Theatre de Complicité began their career. Yeah, uh, they had high the ceilings, so you could have jongle, you could have jugglers, and you could have stilt walkers. You could. Well, have... it's called Jonglers. I mean, presumably, exactly. it's got a, yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. it's a variety show. Yeah, and yeah. that comes out of the music hall tradition, you know. And so, yeah. so I think I think listeners who are people who are listening who are say under thirty five may be thinking. What are these people talking about? <laughs> um, I mean, I'm I'm 44, so I can kind of remember, you know, a little bit of of both. But actually, the the way in which stand up is done now, I mean, the effect of someone like Eddie Izzard, he just sort of shifted stand up in a particular direction, and and now stand up is just kind of bears no relation really to what was, you know, the variety stuff that you're talking about was, you know, was some of novelty acts. I think I think so. But it was coming back before we were so rudely interrupted by Corona. But because I go up to Edinburgh most years, and that's all when you go to Edinburgh, you do see a sort of huge variety of stuff. And spoken words come back a little bit more. Um, I, I, yeah, I think comedy is in good hands. Well, it was in good hands, everyone's doing all right. And you know, it's, it's the, the saddest thing in the world. And I do feel I feel appalling for. Because you know that there are sort of there's a handful of people, probably more than a handful of people, who were going to crack through to the big time this year, whose yeah. time had come. You know, there's that sort of juicy sweet spot for a lot of comedians when, um, you know, their their material is is on point. Uh, they're experienced enough to to really kind of show themselves off properly, and every all the everything is all lined up. And it's all ready to go, and it's just such a cruel thing to have happened. Yeah, yeah. I think um, just just to kind of get a quick update on that, actually, because um, you know it has been a desperate time. Some comedians have kind of risen to the occasion in some ways. Uh, also, the government has said they're going to give some of the money from the that they're hoping to save theatre. Theatre funds, yeah. To, to, to stand up. A little bit, yes, but we don't know who or how yet. But um... and the other, the other silver lining is that, uh, as we all know, those of us who are sort of done stand up at grassroots level, it really doesn't take much to make a venue. You know, mm. you can open, you, you can, uh, as we were saying, you know, all those rooms above pubs. There will always yeah. be rooms above pubs. There will always be, you know, that um, community centre, you know, the church hall, all those places you can put stand up on anywhere. Yeah. And if yeah, if the Edinburgh Fringe has taught us one thing, it is very much that any room can be turned yeah. into <laughs> to a venue. Yeah. And we've all played them. And and also uh, Edinburgh Fringe taught me is that uh, so uh, my my gigs have always been socially distanced um in terms of <laughs> <laughs> the people that end up seeing. I know them. when you can go and go well, yeah, there's there's three people in. I think we're allowed. Yeah. I mean, I'm surprised the Edinburgh Fringe isn't just going ahead as normal, really. <laughs> the only person who is going ahead with it is um, is is Arthur. Arthur Smith is going yeah. ahead with his walking tours. Yeah, uh, he is. Oh, yes, great. Well, I know. Well, in fact, because we were, I was going to be. Uh, we, we'd had about two or three meetings. I was going to be writing his Edinburgh show with him. This uh, oh, what this a new year. show. Yeah, uh, and then you know. There was no what was, show. Are you allowed to say what it's going to be about, or is he saving this up for the future? 
no, because we just, uh, well, I, you probably will save it for the future, but we, you know, we basically, we met up a couple of times to talk about what sort of areas we thought might be interesting to do uh, a, sh a show about. And that's as far as we got. And then, yeah. uh, you know, this was, this was early March, you know, so. And, uh, and, and, that, mm. and we've all got all those sort of reams of material ready to be, you know, shaped and properly moulded and, and kind of shone up and it's all just sitting there. I, I would like to mention um, Stephen Grant at this point. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Stephen is—he's uh, the compare at Comedia uh, in mm -hmm. Brighton, and he's a you know very very skilled stand-up and compare as well. But he he's probably has... like a man now. When I first met him, I mean, literally, I was I was grown up, and he looked about twelve. I know he still does. I remember meeting him then, yeah. thinking, "What? They're getting younger <laughs> every day. These comics." Um, yeah. But he has—he uh, was one of the first. He set up. Comedian. He kind of basically set up his his house as a sort of mini comedian. He's got to set up a backdrop. He got other comedians. He he he's he's got. A, there's a few comedian shows on uh, YouTube. You can subscribe to that. It's a great some great little shows he put on. And he's now organising uh, open air shows in in Brighton. And and um, in fact, he's just talking about some of the weird things you you have to be careful of, like how near can the performer be um, to audience you know because when you're you're shouting particularly no, you're spitting. You know, yeah and, and yeah and you know will the uh what, what about the speakers there's a there's like a school playground 300 yards away is there a chance that some of the so it's kind of new logistics I I, yeah well this is this is one of the reasons why i've always thought shy of doing outside gigs i remember doing um I think I was still doing poetry. I must have been. Um, Jeff, you know Jeff, my partner, who's uh, yeah. is he's in the house. <laughs> no, he's still knocking about, and um, he came to pick me up. And it's gone all right, but they've been, you know, it, it, it's, it's never easy to control an outside space. It just isn't, especially when it's one of those. It was like a um, a fate, a, a kind of not a school fate, a, a kind of community fate. I was the wrong person to ask. And Jack was waiting for me in the car, and he just heard this disgusted bloke storming out of this field, going, "She said tips over the tannoy." <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's yeah. fantastic! But I, I, I it, one of the things um, that um, I always thought um, a thing we could do from our generation of stand-ups, you could always say, uh, "Are they a writer, or are they a, a writer first, or performer first? And you say, "Oh, him." Uh, he's a writer. Yeah, I was always a writer who performed. Um, Paul Merton, he's always a performer. Uh, that person, writer, performer. Uh, you, you were always both. There were very few people who managed to be both. Um, and and I was wondering how you know which which um, which which came first for you. Well, definitely the performing first because um, I was a, a terrible show off as a child. I mean, you know, terribly needy of attention. I was a classic middle child. Um, oh. And I did a lot of, I, I mean, there are photographs of me and I recognise the expressions I used to pull. I was a face pulling, gurning, you know, attention seeking, desperate wannabe. And, um, you know, I, I thought I was hilarious. I used to do little practical jokes and I used to wear my dad's army hats and, you know, parade about with nothing else but an army hat on and all this kind of thing. I remember feeling that I was hilarious, very, very young, about three or four, and that I was really funny and knowing my sister wasn't. <laughs> I just, 
Uh, and then sort of, uh, you know, I had a slightly inflated view of myself as a, you know, a very funny person uh, and, and a popular person and a sort of, you know, an entertainer. And then when I was um, older, when I was about maybe 11 or 12, I went around to a friend's house and I read her diary when she went to the toilet. She had a list of all her friends in the front page of her diary and what she liked or didn't like about them. And I was in this list and it just said, um, Jenny thinks she's more popular than she actually is. <laughs> Ooh, wow. <laughs> That's up there yeah. with time out, isn't it? <laughs> Do you know, isn't it funny? I can remember these these things, these barbed comments. It's probably really That sounds good like an Edinburgh me. show. <laughs> Doesn't it? Jenny thinks she's more popular than she actually is. I got another review from Three Weeks or The Fest once for a play that I'd written called The Andy Warhol Syndrome that simply said, Jenny Clare thinks this play is cleverer than it is. <laughs> I've, I'm, I've got a review once um, for a show uh, that I wrote called um, Dog. And, um, I remember, was, it was Back to Front God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it was uh, this very, very famous uh, reviewer came to see it, a woman called Joyce McMillan from the Scots. Oh, I remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and she basically, you know, in a, in a sort of 1,500-word article about, the, you know, the, 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 the great shows on the fringe and everything I've seen, and it was a sort of buried about three-quarters of the way through. I saw a dog, which was a real dog of a show, and that was it. And then she went on yeah. to something else. And I was yeah, she doing... couldn't even be bothered to give it 500 words. That's the no. most, that's kind of the most painful thing. Yeah, but... gonna... Okay, you're going to slag me off. At least spend 20 minutes writing the review. <laughs> The worst, the worst thing was that I was also doing a show that year uh, called the Cutting Edge Comedy Store Show, and uh, yeah. this guy um, John Connor, who was the producer, who oh, was yeah, a, yeah, yeah. he was a critic, uh, and he and I said, oh, <laughs> look what Joyce McMillan said about my show, a real dog of a show, and rather than saying, oh Dave, you poor thing, he said, oh yeah, Joyce McMillan, I really like her, she's a fantastic critic. Well, oh, uh, thanks, John. <laughs> she just called <laughs> my play a dog, you know. Yeah, so, sensitivity <laughs> in in the world of comedy sometimes can be lacking, can't it? I mean, I think there's the trouble with spending a lot of time with a lot of comics is you realise that they're on the scale of sort of social misfits. There's quite a, a lot of us are very much on that scale somewhere or other. Uh, but going back to uh, the writing or the performing, um, so I definitely before I could write, I was showing off. Then when I was able to write, I went to, as I said, my dad was in the army. And I went to this rather progressive school in Berlin. And um, they just, excuse me, I'm drinking Diet Coke and I'm burping disgustingly. Oh, did you hear that? There that it was is. Yeah. You must have done that. I never burp. I'm, I'll say okay. it seriously. That's about the fifth burp I've ever done in my life. I, I'm glad that's been captured on air. I really am. Right. Yeah, that's um, staying in. It's such a rarity. Okay, so I went to this uh, this funny school, uh, this international school, and they just encouraged you to be really creative. And there was a lot of it was it was sort of hippie, but not with no hippie morals or anything like that. It was just very creative. There's a lot of lying around, drawing around each other, and story writing. They just encouraged you to write stories and illustrate them. And I just loved that. I really really got off on it and then we uh, my dad um he was a, a part-time spy and he took um some, i know he's, he's dead now that's another edinburgh show right there you just 
You just know, when yeah. you've done the fringe so many times, your life is incredible, Jenny. Well, it's not really. I mean, he was only part-time. and he uh, got Well, that makes it more <laughs> interesting, not less interesting. We, and then it went downhill. He had to leave, we had to leave Berlin quite rapidly. And we ended up um, in Barnard Castle. And I went to this really, really quite rough school in St on Stainton Camp, on Army Camp in Barnard Castle and there they didn't you know they weren't interested in you writing stories or drawing pictures it was it was all about maths you had to be able to do maths and I'd never done sums and I remember um my first day there where we did a maths test times tables test and I was about eight I'd never I'd never done this kind of maths I had no idea and at the end of this test you had to all stand on your chairs and those were 10 out of 10 could sit down and those was nine out of ten. Now sit down. Eight out of ten. Oh. I got one out of ten, and I was the last girl standing. And there was a moment where I, I, I remember this quite clearly, where I couldn't decide whether I was getting off on being the only person left standing on a chair and everyone sta staring at me, whether I quite enjoyed that, or whether it was the most hideous experience of my life. And I think quite a lot of my stand-up experiences have been that same mix of kind of knowing I'm failing, but still liking being the centre of attention. Mm -hmm. That makes well, any sense. Oh, it <laughs> makes total sense, yeah. And I, makes... That's such a great moment, isn't it? Mm. Mm, sort of. And, I, and it does make sense. And, and, and you know, I, I don't want to kind of overstate the, uh, the, 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 the business about women in comedy. And I'm sure you've been asked to, to talk about this lots of times. And, and but, but, I mean, there were, when I started out, there were what I don't know three or four women doing comedy. Oh, I think you. I think we're not counting enough. I reckon, Dave, that there were more than that. It was just that we never saw them on mass. There were um, when I think about because there were there were also there were kind of women that were, might not have been doing straight stand up, but were doing comedy in other ways, like Denise Black and the Cray Sisters and Sensible Footwear. And people like that, and they were, you know, they were singing their comedy songs, but they were still involved in what I call the comedy circuit. Um, and I, I think that I think we're missing a few of those names have just got lost in, in time. And I, I think that, you know, we recounted there were probably about twenty. I once had a little drinks party at my flat for the women in comedy, and I know there were at least fifteen or twenty. You know, Drina Durrell, uh, Linda Smith, Julie Ballou. I mean. Through the 80s, um, there, there were, and Brenda Gould, who, what happened, I think, was that the, the, the uh, opportunities for, for moving into television were very, very tiny. And it seemed that once somebody got through that door from the circuit into telly, that door got shut immediately. And that, what that did was it instilled a sort of terrible competitiveness mm. in me. I don't think every woman got that. I think, particularly for me, I was very, very jealous when other people were successful, because it was there was such um, an atmosphere of if it, if it wasn't your turn, you might if you didn't get through, you might never get through. It doesn't. It didn't seem very, very fair. It didn't seem very shared out, uh, and. Um, I, I also was very jealous when a new name came up. I remember the first time we saw Joe Brand, and it was at the Tunnel, the tunnel Club, which do you remember doing the Tunnel Club, Dave? Oh, very well. <laughs> yeah, I remember, once, I, once, I remember once hearing Harry Hill throwing up in the toilet before he went <laughs> on stage. <laughs> Just from sheer nerves. It was one of those things. There was that toilet in the corner, 
and I could just say, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, anyway, uh, yeah, I was, I was, I'd been on and sort of just got away with it by the skin of my teeth or whatever. And Joe went on, she absolutely stormed it. And I remember this feeling of absolute sickness, thinking, oh, oh, she's just leapfrogged over me. I've been oh, doing this yeah. for years, and she's just completely, she's, she's run by me, you know. Mm. I've been overtaken. Well, that's kind of what I'm sort of think, thinking about, uh, sort of the reason that I mentioned the women thing, because I, I, I was thinking of um, uh, Frank Skinner in particular, but also uh, like someone, someone like Nick Hancock, for instance, who, you know, we, we you know, these are two great talented An performers. excellent comic, yeah. You know, yeah. brilliant. But um, the number of uh, chances that they, they got compared to, say, the number of chances that uh, for instance, um, Felix uh, Dexter, who made an absolutely brilliant uh, pilot, um, what, uh, which didn't get aired, and that was it. Um, and then you're talking about yourself. You got one. You got one shot. Um, mm. And uh, but I, I remember uh, Nick uh, did a famously did something that I think was like 26 pilots before um, the, the sport program. holding the baby. Uh, yeah, uh, I think that Wasn't was a whole that? series. But yeah, actually, is this, no, radio, was... this is radio we're talking, is it? No, no, TV. TV oh, really? Pilots. Yeah, he made That's loads and loads. And and so there was this, you know, kind of sense that we, well, you know, we we know that Nick is great and he looks great on telly. Um, we'll we're just going to keep going till we find the 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 uh, the, the the right the right uh, vehicle. vehicle. Yeah. Mm. Whereas I felt at the time somebody like yourself maybe um, that you know. Okay, well, she did pack it a three, um, which was a you know a cl classic channel for early days of alternative comedy. Um, you know, misfire. <laughs> well, hit hit and miss. I think it's yeah, all, you yeah. know they were kind of nobody knew what what was going to work, and and you know um, so um, uh, you know Vic Reeves came along and did his big night out show, and that 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 was you know there was there's no necessarily no reason why that was more successful so that was interesting as well though i remember um doing a pub gig in south london uh with vic and bob and i'd been on first it was okay but there was it, it was non-committal you know and then i saw vic and bob come on and that the audience reaction to them was just it just went through the roof and it was as if it was their private party and I'd sort of slightly gate crashed it and I was just not the right, I wasn't in the right tribe. And I remember watching that show with a feeling of absolute panic because I didn't understand why everybody was loving it so much. Uh, and interesting. I, felt, I wasn't, I don't think I was very young, I don't think I was very old, but I remember thinking, my stuff's old hat, this is new stuff. This is what what yeah. am I going to do? Because this, uh, this is what the audience now want. And of course, what you realise in time is that is there's room for all kinds of different comedy. Yeah. But back then, there didn't seem it, it, when you're when you're still trying so hard to to get yourself a niche, you feel that other people's success is automatically going to cancel yours out. Yeah, oh, it's a zero so. sum game feeling, isn't it? Yeah, and it's, yeah. It, it starts at every uh, every gig you always had because at the end of the gig, the compare would always read out the names of the acts. Yeah, and, yeah. and you knew you knew when you'd oh. done well in that act yeah. gig, and yeah. you know you get oh, and uh, Dave Cohen, 
Hey, Jenny Eclair. Hey, you know, and you just kind of you 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 felt you know you, you took it personally. Yeah, oh, was there to take personally. I mean, that's, yeah, yeah. I mean, that is the ultimate three hundred and sixty degree feedback that they talk about in management speak, isn't it? It's just like, okay, yeah. that that's pretty direct, isn't it? You know, that's mm. uh, yeah. Um, I've got a few um, questions here uh, from some of our Patreon subscribers, just to, just to sneak in. Is this going um, out live? No, no, no. no. I asked them earlier today on Facebook to say, we're talking to wonderful Jenny Eclair. And lots of people said, oh, that's very exciting. Ask her this. Um, okay. So Eleanor, um, Eleanor Haywood asked about, she said, she said, in another interview, you said, and she's quoting here, more attention should be given to female comics back in the, should have been given to more female comics back in the 80s and 90s, but opportunities are better now. And then she says, but as people get older, male and female, are they ignored or overlooked do you think the comedy industry decision makers are open to new writers and new talent over 30, even over 40? I've heard this. Uh, yeah, I have heard this, uh, you know, that everyone's desperate for the new, younger, um, fresher um, without uh, and, and forget to pay some respect to people who've been kind of learning their craft. Yeah. Um, I, my daughter's a playwright and she's 31 and she went up something a couple of years ago and uh, she was, somebody said something and she kind of said, well, you know, I'll be 30 next year. And seriously, someone said to her, well, I'd keep very quiet about that. Um, wow. Because, you know, you're lucky enough to look like you could get away with 26, so just never mention it, which is, you know, she thought was ridiculous as well. It is ridiculous. Um, it's interesting because you want, you, what you really want is a mix you, in, I mean, I think that very rightly, the Michaela Cole, um, I May Destroy You, has been the hit of lockdown in terms of drama. Um, and it's it's great to have her new voice. Yeah. I mean, there's a danger now that everybody will be looking for the new, younger, fresher Michaela Cole. And you just want to sort of go, no, let, just you know let Michaela Cole grow don't don't let don't just sort of harvest her take all her bones and blood and organs yeah. and then sort of put her out to pasture you know you, you've got sort of I think that's I mean I don't have a great track record with television at all I think that that's one of the reasons why I had to go away and say I have more control if I write stuff produce it Right. Uh, and get on with it. I mean, I've had some very odd lucky breaks, which did come to me later in life. Um, so if this is going to cheer anybody up, really my biggest television breakthrough came when I was about 44. And I was approached, it was one of those doldrum times in my career. Um, and I'm listening. I'm, I'm, I'm 44. Carry on. Okay, well, it's, it's yet to happen then. So I got a phone call saying, uh, ooh, uh, Avalon here um, and we've been approached and I don't know whether you'd be interested because the title of the show is Grumpy Old Women and uh, I just basically said well how much it was one of those talking heads things and um, the money was quite good I thought well, fuck it really you know it doesn't really matter nobody will watch it and Grumpy Old Women was this real huge hit and that wasn't a sitcom and it wasn't a comedy drama it was a talking head show, but it was put together with a great deal of skill by a female TV producer called Judith Holder, who I've since worked a lot with. So she was a TV producer and um, we had lunch together after the series had proved to be a bit of a hit. And 
we I had my manager with me and by the time we finished lunch it was decided that we were going to write a live show a, a live grumpy old women show so you know the opportunities can come from really odd angles yeah uh, and that you know we've we've since written four separate grumpy old women live shows and and toured all over with them you know we've been to australia we've been to yeah um iceland and and finland and all sorts of things with them so you know just when you think just when you think oh this is my darkest hour sometimes yeah. a little bit of light creeps in yeah i mean it's i was talking to milton the other day uh, milton jones i write his radio show with him yeah and he was saying that actually one of the things that he's most proud of is that he's just kept going and i totally know, and, agree yeah and actually, i feel like a, um, a jack russell sometimes that just you know, yeah. keep grabbing on the bottom of their pair of trousers. Yeah. And those those people who are sort of even further down the track, you know, those in their, you know, really long in the tooth comedians, they sort of seem to have a bit of a Zen quality about them, which is there are some things in your control, which is basically what you do and say on stage. And there are some things that aren't. And you just sort of wait when the opportunity comes along. You make the most of it. Sometimes it will really help you. Sometimes it sounds like a great idea and it goes against you. And sometimes it doesn't come along. And if you don't want that, you're in the wrong game. Go yeah. and work for an insurance company. You know what I mean? Just do, do something else. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that's what always what comes across against, you know, the real elder statesman. Uh, I still well. think, though, that some people have slipped through the net. I do oh, yeah. think there's every generation of comedians, there are uh, uh, quite a number of names that deserved more and didn't get it. Mm. I think... Just, just to go back to Eleanor's uh, question, and I, and I think um, in, in terms of um, uh, always looking for new and uh, uh, things, I think I think that will all that's that there is an instinct everywhere in any art form uh, that people who are, people are always looking, people see something successful, they want to find a new, a younger version of it. But I, I, yeah. I think there is also in comedy a sense that. Uh, new doesn't necessarily mean young and, uh, and you can be 30 and 40 and 50 and uh, not have um, got uh, done anything previously I mean someone like Ricky Gervais for instance was in his mid-30s before anyone uh, knew who he was uh, so I think in, uh, I think comedy is a sort of exception thank god uh, yeah. where you can well, also be for you 40. Dave you know there was a point recently where someone said there's this they're doing a tv show of horrible histories do you fancy writing some songs you yeah. know and that was just like that wouldn't have come if you'd packed it in and done something else yeah. uh you know what i mean and then, well, you've got to just, hang around for the opportunities yeah. you've got to, you know you've got yeah. to be you've got to be there yeah. um very much so and um, but i i do think that it's uh radio i mean i think it's it, it, it's it's weird that there's there isn't a sort of is this a there, there's no competition for radio four and it's so difficult mm. for people to get their stuff onto radio four because there just aren't enough slots yeah. and it feels very much that there could be instead of radio four extra why isn't there a radio four extra extra which is just you know for new comedy new writing new experimental yeah. stuff uh, you know but I don't run the world. Which is a no, shame. I mean, the, the closest to that, and I've got a question about um, uh, that in a moment, um, is Audible, I think, are getting there. So I think Audible are trying to, when I when I was last in contact with Audible, they were saying, we're looking for stuff that, that isn't Radio 4-ish at all. So 
But it, oh, it's really? Still... Because I mean, I'm a huge fan of Audible because, um, and I've noticed very much over the last couple of years, I have a, a, a condition called dry eye syndrome, which uh, means that my reading capacity has, you know, I've got to, it's got to be limited because my eyes get very dry. Mm. Um, and I have to read everything in very big print, which is annoying. So I've switched most of my leisure reading to Audible. And I've noticed in the last couple of years that things aren't being read straight anymore. You're getting fantastic productions. There's a book called Daisy Jones and the Six about a fictional band who are a bit like um, Fleetwood Mac. And that's got a proper cast. You know, it is cast like a radio play. And yeah. it's, it's fabulous, you know. And yeah, the, yeah. More and more are being done like that, where there's as equal emphasis on the performance as the yeah. as the book itself. Yeah, but the beauty of that is radio is. I mean, hey, we're doing a podcast. It's it's cheap, cheap. Yeah, to do. yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I, wanna... I mean, I do a podcast, but um, yet to make a single penny out of it. Well, yes, yeah, I feel so far. I've been, I've been lent an electric bike. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's taxable, so you want to be very careful about that. Um, no, Len, Len, uh, Len. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure they'll find a way somehow. One of the questions we had, which is radio related, is from uh, another Patreon a guy, um, uh, Jerry Payton, who asks about tips on writing monologues. Suspiciously, uh, sus not suspiciously, specifically, how to make them engaging, which is always difficult with the one voice. I'm thinking of Little Lifetime series that you did for Radio Four. You've, right, yeah, you've got about thirty of them, haven't you? No. There are six series. There are six series of um, of either five or I mean, some have been six per series and some have been four or five, whatever. But there are a lot. There's also a book called Listening In with some extras that have never been recorded that are sort of, uh, you know, for publication only. Yeah. Um, well, those those are a weird one, really, because. I have no idea. I have no idea how I do any of my writing. I, there are no. I, I follow no rules. Uh, there's like this sort of gut instinct that something's going to happen, and there's a, like a small idea that is like a jelly, a form of jelly that starts to solidify. So it's as if you know, if you've got some coloured water in a dish, and then suddenly it starts to sort of take on form. And then, you know, before you know it, it, it has, there's a character there. I believe very much in the character first and the character um, telling you, dictating the story. The, I, I, I'm not good at plotting, actually. I mean, I, I sort of, mm. I, you know, it's, well, I wish I could, because I've been asked to, to do workshops and teach writing things. And I always turn them down because I have no method of being able to share any tips or tricks with anybody. I don't know how it happens. Well, I was thinking, though, with little lifetimes, um, and, and, you know, you get the most sort of fantastic uh, cast for those uh, shows. Uh, so, uh, so I'm thinking, if uh, do, do you know, uh, well, Linda Robson wants to do one of these. Do you, uh, are you kind of writing, are you kind of seeing... Uh, or Pauline Quirk or no, yeah. no, I don't. I don't write them for the actresses. They, <laughs> they're on their own. Um, they chose that life. I, I write the character, and then it's up to the producer to find an actress that oh, can really? do it oh, with as authentic a voice as possible. Yeah, I'd never. I would never have the nerve to sit down and go, "Oh, I, I think I'd like to write this for Imelda Staunton," because I, I would have no idea that Imelda Staunton would be free, available, or interested. So no, I write about a. a, a woman with sort of peculiar control issues um, and, a, and a father with dementia. And um, it just turns out that Imelda Staunton was free to do it. 
Yeah, that's the beauty of radio is that you can get some absolute gem actors because they they love the fact that there's no makeup. You don't need to learn your lines and you just turn up, you do it and you go home. It's, you know, and it's yeah, it's, and it's, and it's on. You know what I mean? It's actually on um, and doesn't really need any rehearsal. As I was well. just thinking that there was one actress, Leslie, oh, Leslie Manville, oh. Uh, literally. <laughs> Literally, she is a 15 minute monologue and it took her 20 minutes. She more or less did it in one take. I mean, I was I was due to the studio and I was held up for some reason. By the time I got there, she'd gone. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Wow. I yeah. think and we got one more uh, question, I think. From, yeah, just uh, going back to your stand-up stuff from um, uh, Tom Peach, who asked about whether... Um, she, uh, he says that you've got one of the most distinctive and wonderful comedic voices. And um, his question is, how much of this is developed uh, rather than natural? And how did you go about developing the voice, as it were, just going, going back to, you know... Uh, that's really interesting because I think I've, I've done a bit of a full circle. Um, I think what happened with me was that as a very young person, I knew I was funny. And then when I joined the uh, comedy circuit, I thought I had to be a bit more than just funny. And I wasn't mm. quite naturally me or myself. So I developed a persona, this sort of slightly monstrous Jenny Eclair character who sort of did a lot of striding around the stage with a cigarette and, a you know, that kind of hard drinking, hard talking, hard swearing kind of thing. And um, it did, it sort of did me a lot of good, but I had um, quite a lot of sort of, mental problems with it because I felt like two personalities. I felt there was stage Jenny and me Jenny. Unfortunately, mm. what has managed to happen over, over the last 20 years, 15 years maybe, is that those two characters have merged, that the stage Jenny was allowed to become a lot softer with the Grumpy Old Women shows. And eventually what emerged was that, that a much truer stage persona to myself. Right. Yeah, I think I, could, I think I could answer that question as well because I remember I remember when you uh, went from being uh, Jenny, the the you know the, the the regular performer who was great and always always did well at gigs, and then you became uh, you, you kind of went off into the stratosphere, and I think it was the moment that you found out you were pregnant. Um, because you, you, your routine changed literally overnight. And, and yeah. I remember not having seen you for about three months and you'd been doing your normal stand-up and poetry. And the, the next time I saw you, you were doing an entire routine about finding out that you were pregnant. And it was mm-hmm. just like, it was... Um, it was just I was lucky. Not many women had done that at the time. I was 28. It was 1988. Phoebe was born in 1989. Uh, I got a lot of mileage out of her. And, uh, <laughs> and, you know, and job benefit as well. So, you know, it's yeah, all, all silver linings. And um, yeah, well, I, I think that yeah, that was a life changing moment. And it also sort of gave me a massive kick up the butt because uh, I realized that um, there were two ways my career was going to go. I was either going to be a stay at home mother for longer than I was going to be comfortable with or I was going to have to get this career of mine into some kind of shape so that I had some kind of um, I was going to get back into it and um, I had the baby and I remember being very frightened of my first gig back and Jeff drove me to this gig and we had the baby in the back we had a fantastic car it was gold 
It was gold Jagmark 10. You don't see any of them anymore. They're the biggest cars you've ever seen. I remember that car, yeah. Yeah, it was fantastic. And, um, mm. you know, I gave the baby a feed and, and I had. it was a club on the King's Road, somewhere off the King's Road. It was like a nightclub. It was horrific, really. And I went and did an okay gig. And But I remember sort of crying all the way there because I was scared. And Jeff saying, you know, you'll thank me for this in the end. <laughs> and and I did. And then I sort of, and then, you know, poor old Phoebe, you know, I, I, I got a nanny for her, but not a proper one. I mean, I didn't go through an agency or anything like that. I just put a note up in the supermarket for nice girl wanted, wanted to look after baby. I didn't check any references or anything. <laughs> Very lucky, really, in some respects. So, um, yeah, and then and then that's it. I started gigging three months after she was born and didn't really stop. Well, that's a, that's an unexpected answer to to a question about developing your voice. Oh, well, sorry, I forgot about that. Yeah, so I think that I think the me that's on stage now is truest yeah. to the real me that there ever yeah. has been. Yeah, but again, you you have time to be able to play with that, and there are contours and it just sort of shifts and with your career, yeah. with your own life situation, everything. And that's all fine. That's all part of it. And you get that by sticking around for a bit and doing stuff rather than just focusing on the under twenties or under thirties and their one voice. It's just like, you know, it feels like we've kind of got this the wrong way around industry wise, doesn't it? Well, uh, for me, I, you know, I've sort of like been uh, chipping away at a certain coal face for quite a long time. And that, you know, I know what I am and I know what I do and the voice really is there to um, for for women of my own age who sort of have quite a lot in common and want to come out together and laugh at the same things? I, I can't really pretend it's any cleverer than that, uh, and that sort of that makes me happy. It makes them happy, and it sort of managed to spill out into the other things like older and wider, the menopause book, the podcast older and wider, which I do with Judith. You know, the grumpy shows that it it's. It, uh, you know, it's it's okay. It's okay. I would still like, God in heaven, I would still like somebody to phone me up one day and say, listen, you know, we're looking for a female afternoon quiz show host. You sit on your ass all yeah. day, you get fed the answers down the tube in your ear. Yeah. Um, and you get paid like shed loads of money. And, um, oh, yeah. I mean, I came very close to getting um, the, you know, Sandy Toxwig left Bake Off this year. Yeah. Uh, I came very close to becoming a new host with Noel for that. Oh, that would be great. I mean, well, you've no, got, it would have been got the great. name for it and everything, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, no, it, it, it didn't quite work. I mean, I'm really fond of Noel. Noel's fond of me. But we had uh, an audition together and it didn't gel. And I wouldn't uh, have cast me either. Uh, it was I was trying too hard. And, and because I was trying too hard, Noel started trying too hard. And it just wasn't natural. It wasn't, you know, so... Sometimes they sent me a really massive bunch of flowers, and that's always when you know you've come second. Okay. Well, second's pretty good. Second's pretty good. And but, but meantime, we'll look out for opportunities uh, for you, Jenny. And obviously, well, afternoon quiz show host. Anyone who's anyone okay. listens to this podcast, um, but they should probably go and listen uh, to your podcast as well. What's the name of it again? It's called Older and Wider. Older and is... Wider. Yeah, which, which is the title of your latest book as well. Yeah, yeah. the non-fiction, yeah. Uh, yeah. Older and Wider, A Survivor's Guide to the Menopause is a sort of comedy guide to the menopause and Older and Wider, the podcast, is out every Friday morning. So it's me and my friend Judith Holder and we're a sort of town mouse, country mouse duo 
and uh, she's just got a new puppy uh, and I've mm. got very little to offer, but there we go. <laughs> Excellent. Well, that's fantastic. And uh, well, thanks very much, Jenny. It's been a, a pleasure to... Uh, well, lovely to see you, you and uh, lovely to catch up and all the very, very best indeed. <laughs> <laughs>